as a rule, we praise people who make good decisions. But like contracts given to athletes, it's always based on past performance. We admire people who pour over streams of data and analyze structures and processes, research markets, because we believe that they've learned themselves to a better decision-making. But the science we have actually tells us the opposite, that the outcomes of decision-making are generally no better for people who agonize or deliberate over it. In fact, most decisions made in a blink of an eye work out just as well, if not better, long-term which apart from other things, might be an argument for speed dating, by the way, but the Nobel, Nobel Prize winning Israeli psychologist, Daniel Kahneman, who actually works in the science of decision making, tells the following story. Someone goes to a doctor with a problem and the doctor tells him, I have good news, there's a procedure that will cure this, 90% chance it'll work. The patient says, sign me up, that's great. But that person may have gone to another doctor, and the different doctor may have said to him, I have a procedure, but it has a 10% chance of working. And the patient says, that's terrible. Why would I sign up for that? This is all to say that the decisions that we live with in this world, between the ones we make in a blink in an eye or the ones that we agonize over, are as imperfect as we are. There is a lesson waiting here for us to take heed of, which is something that the ancient rabbis of Judaism not only knew personally, but wanted each of us to know for generations. The Torah tells us this morning of the plague striking Egypt with increasing ferocity and violence. These plagues, first of blood in the water, and then infestations, followed by viral decimations of their herds, and then of their own bodies, by the end of the story, it comes to a total of 10. And the wide effect of them are felt by Egyptians everywhere in Egypt, to the young, to the old, to the wealthy and the poor, to the ruled and the ruling. No one was spared. Every native Egyptian, not the Israelites, had no escape from it, which turns us into a story not only of punishment for the horrible oppressions against the Israelites, because remember that the plagues began only with the murderous drowning of the Israelite children. It was only then that the divine call came to end the slavery. The story of these plagues is also the story of collective punishment because the demand to free the Israelites from slavery is not made to some anonymous papyrus seller living in the city of Pitom or Ramses. Moses doesn't go to some unknown slave trader to make known what God wants. No, Moses goes to Pharaoh because he's the one who can deliver on God's demand. It's certainly not in the hands of the papyrus dealer or some random Egyptian housewife. It's Pharaoh's and Pharaoh's alone. So why is everyone punished? The question becomes more real when you know what happens afterwards. You've seen the movie. With the tenth and final plague, Pharaoh breaks and lets the Israelites go. But his decision is momentary. And not long after, with his army, he hunts down the Israelites who are making their way to the Red Sea, trapped on either side. Pharaoh's army at one end and the Dead Sea, Red Sea, excuse me, on the other. What seems like a dead end now becomes the seed of redemption 
the waters part. The Israelites pass through to the other side to safety. And the Pharaoh was looking at this, consumed with anger, filled with shame and humiliation. He lunges with his army into the waters. But the miracle given to the Jews would not be extended to him and his people. And they drown to their deaths. Legend has it that when the Egyptians were drowning, the Israelites broke out into song, the words of which are said every day in our prayers. And as the Jews were singing, the angels in heaven began to sing along as well. And when God heard the angels singing, he told them to stop. And the angels are stunned. After all, they say, how often do we see justice in this world where the evil gets their due and the good are rewarded and protected? How often does that happen, they say. And God says to them that you must stop singing. Because because my children are drowning. You take these two stories. The first where God throws ten plagues at the Egyptians with no concern to who it harms. And the second where God is mourning the deaths of the very soldiers who empowered the Pharaoh to do his cruelty. And you must ask, which one is true? Collective punishment or collective mourning? Disregard consequences or weigh every loss. You know, there was a time when these questions were conceptual. The kinds of conversations that would take place between rabbis and theologians in the hallways of universities and seminaries. But no more. It's your conversation. Because in the aftermath of the Hamas attacks of October the 7th, we are living in a question that the humanistic Western world has little ability to grasp. Because we are in and we are witnessing a collision of values and objectives that cannot function alongside each other. Wage a war to destroy the military capability of a people responsible for the horrific, brutal attacks on innocent civilians so they cannot do it again. Return 132 hostages being closely held by those people and apply lethal military force with care and restraint against a civilian population being held by those same people as human shields. Now, most people see tragedies as binary things, a decision you have to make between two paths. Inevitably, you figure one of the paths is good and one of the paths is bad. And the tragedy for you is, is that if you choose the bad path, but seldom acknowledged, there is also a reality where a dilemma can be tragic, meaning there are no good outcomes. You look at one path, and it's bad. You look at the second path, and it's bad. Every choice in front of you yields a bad result, and it's tragic because there's nothing at the end of the road that you can point to in hindsight and say, it worked out for the best, or that maybe one path is less bad than the other, or that maybe there's one way you have more control over the bad than another, or that maybe one direction might give a chance for you to reverse the bad at some point. But there are moments when all the choices are bad. And what's worse is, is that you cannot not make a choice. You must choose. After October the 7th, what should Israel have done? Place the return of the hostages first by trading a military response for them? 
That would leave Hamas in power with a tactical and strategic victory that renders living in southern Israel impossible. Or undertake a military action to cripple the threat, which at the same time threatens the safety of the hostages. And now even deeper. Because the self-defense of your citizens is the absolute prime directive of every nation state. You engage in a military reprisal which places civilians in harm's way. Remembering that this is a defensive operation. This was not a war of your choosing. But the failure to respond destroys your deterrence. And in the aftermath of thousands of terrorists pouring into your country, destroying towns and murdering 1,200 innocent civilians, lays waste to the notion of governance and safety within your borders. It creates an invitation to others to do the very same, knowing that there will be no punishment for their horrible crimes. This is what you call a tragic dilemma. And all of this, the questions, the nuance, the consideration, is what was missing entirely last week in South Africa's petition to find Israel guilty of genocide. In the showboat theater, of going to the International Court of Justice, they gave breath and lift to an entire movement of people who refused to acknowledge that Israel is the only country in the world that has other countries actively plotting and announcing its destruction. Israel currently has seven threatening theaters of danger on its borders, seven. It is a refusal to acknowledge that of the over 120 countries established after the Second World War, Israel is the only one given legal charter by the United Nations. And yet it is the only one demonized as being illegitimate by the United Nations. The show trial at The Hague, irrespective of, of whatever decision they're going to make, ignores the reality of what Israel faces. Because to those who are opposed, Israel has no borders, no right of self-defense, no considerations given to every other country in the world. The trial at The Hague is an anti-Semitic libel. To them, there is no tragic dilemma. Because to the accusers and the billions of their supporters, Israel can never be right. It is wrong to retaliate, wrong to protest, wrong to exist. Ostracized condemned, threatened, and attacked, this tiny country of nine million souls, home to the world's largest Jewish community, has no good choices. To fail is to be the end of the Jewish mission in this world. To fight is to be accused of having an evil mission. And yet we know this ground. From Egypt until now. The price paid to be safe and free can be painfully dear. But to be caught in a tragic dilemma must not mean that you don't wish for something different, for something better. To be caught in a tragic dilemma does not mean we won't wish for the good. It doesn't mean that we don't mourn the loss of the innocent and the destruction of home and life. We do. And the proof of that is found on the people that we send to protect us. Not the barbarians that are depicted in the media, but the men and women who at this moment are placing their lives on the, in danger are the brightest and the best of us. 
They are doctors and lawyers and computer scientists, veterinarians and school teachers and psychologists and entrepreneurs with children and homes. And they left it all behind to put an end to this tragic dilemma. Because in the Israeli army, we are told that we do not fight because we hate what is in front of us. We fight because we love what is behind us. This past December, when I was in Israel, outside an army base that we were to visit, I met five men with smiles and bright eyes and caring hearts. I was given the news this week that they all perished in Gaza. And I know they will be remembered for the people they were outside of their uniforms. To the family of Dennis Vexler, Ron Nefrimi, Amit Shachar, Rui Maimon, Yair Katz, and now the over 500 other fallen soldiers of this war. May their memories be a blessing for all of us, a blessing of security and peace. Because thousands of years earlier, the commander of King Saul's forces asked, must the sword forever devour us? And painfully, no, given, no answer is given to him. But I know that our abiding hope is that one day we will be able to say, no, it isn't. Shabbat Shalom.